0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. Today, we are delighted to have as our guest Stephen Talty, whose new book, The Good Assassin, tells the gripping story of extraordinary evil, its victims redeemed and avenged. Stephen Talty, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: You're a journalist as well as a writer of detective fiction. Your nonfiction books generally focus on crime and American history and on acts of heroism. You co-wrote the book on Captain Phillips, which, on which the movie of the same name, starring Tom Hanks, was based. So how did you come to write about the assassination of the notorious butcher of Latvia?
1: You know, I guess the through line through most of my books is a story of one man or one woman sort of going up against the forces of history and, you know, making a difference um, in an interesting way. So I was reading a a history of the Mossads, I guess you'd call them the kill operations, their lethal efforts against their enemies. And there was a page or two on someone named Herbert Zuckers, who I'd never heard of before. Um, So Zuckers before the war was a national hero. He was sort of what they called the Latvian Lindbergh. He was an aviator, very courageous, um, in many ways, an admirable person. Um, but during the war, he changed and became known as the butcher of Latvia and was accused by Jewish survivors of having murdered 30,000 people. So, uh, in the 1960s, Mossad mounted an operation, um, to basically to assassinate him um, and so i was just fascinated by the story but also fascinated by the agent that they chose to go after him um, a guy who was codenamed mio um, and was had lost his parents in the holocaust himself um, and was sent to south america really on his own to go after this butcher so the idea of um the huge history of the holocaust and world war ii being reduced basically to these two men, you know, a good versus evil story, but more complex than that, um, just fascinated me. So I wanted to to know more.
0: Well, to our great sorrow as human beings, uh, the Nazis and their collaborators in the countries they occupied included many people who enjoyed murdering Jews. Why was Herbert Zucker's, chosen as a target for assassination. What was so special about him? Well,
1: you know, the sad thing is that there were so few survivors of the Latvian Holocaust. I mean, it's a small country, um, and most of the the Jewish men and women were dead by the end of the war. So Zuckers had been famous before the war, and people knew his name, they knew his face. So those survivors um, not only recognized him often in the streets when he was participating in these um, executions and these roundups, you know, they knew his face. So, and many of them had admired him during the war. He was kind of a hero for Jews and Christians alike. Um, But the reason that Mossad decided on an operation was that um, this was also something I didn't know that Germany in 1964, 1965 was considering a statute of limitations for, um, Nazi murder. They'd already passed uh, limit, uh, basically amnesties for anyone who was um, engaged in assault and accessory to murder uh, before that. but this was sort of the big one. They were going to let anyone who'd been uh, accused of mass murder in the Holocaust. Um, they were going to basically let them go and you know walk free in the sun. There would be no prosecution possible. And the justification for that was a law from 1871 that put a 20-year limit on prosecutions for murder. Um, But, of course, those lawmakers in 1871 had a very different idea of what murder was. They hadn't anticipated something like the Third Reich and the wholesale execution of a people. So many Jewish people around the world, many activists, and really just um, interested parties were horrified by this decision. And Mossad had, uh, well, Israel had limited power with the German government. um, And they needed someone to sort of illustrate what had been done during the Holocaust. And they wanted to find him and in assassinating him to show his crimes to the world and to remind people that these monsters were still out there. So, Zuchars was chosen for several reasons. I suspect one of them was that he was Latvian. He was not German. So... Even though he was an illustration of the Holocaust, he might not offend the sensibilities of uh, the German public as much a, as, you know, a, a, a prominent German would. So um, he was well known. Mossad knew her, where he was. He was in Brazil. So he wasn't one of these people um, like Mengele who had gone underground successfully. Um, so they could get to him. Um And that was, those were really the two main reasons they, they had access and his crimes were, were truly horrible. I mean, he was a guy who was friend, a friend to the Jews before the war. Um, as I said, a national hero, and yet he had performed this double cross on his friends and his neighbors and seemingly happily had led them to their death. So he was just a, you know, kind of a shining example of what the Holocaust had done to people and, um, Mossad felt felt he was an appropriate target.
0: Well, I I also didn't know about uh, the statute of limitations that existed and that I learned it all from your book. And and your writing is so graphic. When you described how Latvia changed in a day from being a country where, despite a cultural uh, undercurrent of casual anti-Semitism, The Jews who lived there felt very comfortable, secure. They felt at home. They thought they were Latvians. And then practically overnight, it turned into a nightmare of torture and murder and humiliation. Frankly, I had to take breaks while I was reading it. And I can't imagine what what effect did writing these historically accurate chapters have on you?
1: Um, Well, you know, those those chapters are kind of the distillation of, of many hours I spent listening to, um, the testimony of the survivors. So, you know, I'm afraid I listened to much more of that kind of thing. Um, and, and had to find the more, the most sort of, um, how would you put it? I guess the most effective anecdotes and stories of people who had gone through it. Um, so it was, it was terrible. I mean, um, And one of the things, one of the reasons it was so terrible is that the stories were all so similar. Many, many of these Jewish victims were betrayed by people they, you know, that they were friends with, their co-workers, people that they saw every day. And as you said, you know, they feared the Germans, um, they feared Hitler, but they believed that the Latvians who they'd gone through so much with you know, their fellow Catholic Latvians for the most part, they'd gone through a terrible Soviet um, occupation. So they felt in a certain way, united with, um, you know, with their, their countrymen. And that turned out to be a false confidence. So um, yeah, that was the toughest part of the book for me by far. But I also found a couple of, you know, people who resisted, people who were heroes, people like Zelma Shepshlovitz, who, um, tell us about these- her. Yes.
0: Okay. Good. Zelma. Yeah.
1: Um, Zelma was a fascinating person, a young woman when the, the Nazis walked in. Um, and she was someone who eventually wanted to go to Israel. She wanted to be a foreign language teacher. Um, but when the Nazis came, she was, you know, herded into the ghetto along with her family and other people. Um, but she was, someone who didn't take oppression lightly, she fought back. Um, And at one point when she sensed that the Nazis were going to begin their um, executions, she fled and found refuge with a a Latvian who sort of had expressed his love for her, uh, a guy named Nank. So he was a hero and she found shelter in his apartment and spent the whole uh, war there essentially. And the ironic thing was that some of Nank's friends and his roommates were involved in the executions. Um, They were part of this commando unit, um, which Herbert Zuckers was also part of. So every night um, she would hear stories of the murder of Jews. Um, the, The other men thought she was a Gentile. They didn't suspect that she was Jewish. So she became really, you know, the main witness and the main sort of recorder of all these terrible crimes.
0: And there, there were really, there seemed to be two Latvian heroes. One was Nank, who risked his own life to save Zelma. Uh, and also Eva, her, uh, Zelma's Latvian nanny from her childhood, who stuck with her all the way through. Tell us a bit about Eva.
1: Well, Eva had no children of her own, and she um, just bonded with Zelma's family very strongly before the war. Um, and she would parade through the streets of their small town and, you know, show off this baby girl and people would joke that it was really, um, Eva's baby and, and not the Shepshelovitz's. So they had a very strong bond going into the war. Um, and you know, one of the reasons I chose Zelma's story is it, it shows sort of the best and the worst of the Latvian population. There were heroes among the Latvians. We can't deny that. Um, and, and as you said, two of them were illustrated in her life. Um, so it kind of, you know, shows the two extremes of the Latvian experience. Um, Zelma very much, um, you know, watching her family and her friends disappear day by day, uh, but being helped by, by two Latvians who, who had they been found out, you know, would have been killed right alongside Zelma. So. Um, It's one of the reasons I picked Selma's story, but also her fierce intelligence and her bravery just just moved me.
0: Did you have a sense, and (laughs) I I don't think anyone has been able to really find the answer to to this question, but did you have a sense doing your research about what made some people like Nank and Eva, uh, but there were heroes, similar heroes in the Nazi cesspool who resisted, Uh, in other countries as well. What made people be able to do that instead of going along with the brutality?
1: It is kind of a mystery. I mean, some of it was religious conviction. Um, Some of the stories that didn't make it into the book were about, um, you know, farmers who were very um, deeply religious uh, and having a Jew show up at the front door and knowing that they could be killed if this person was found inside their home, taking them in immediately and really treating them as a member of their own family. Um, but Nank and Eva, I mean, in my, in my research of them, perhaps they were religious, but that didn't really, that wasn't at the forefront of their actions. They just were disgusted by what was happening in the country. Um, Nank certainly felt a personal love for, for Zelma. Um, I don't know, it it just becomes an x-ray of one's character, I think, of what are you going to do, um, you know, when, when time is critical, and you have to make a decision and certain people just have it within themselves to say, you know, my life is worth no more than yours. So it is one of the sort of the great mysteries of the war, but um, Zelma certainly saw both sides of it.
0: Right. Well, tell us about the Mossad agents involved in the operation. You mentioned Mio, who was the primary, but then there were also uh, Yariv and Michael. So tell us about those people.
1: Um, The unit that was assigned to take down Herbert Zuckers was was based in Europe, in Paris. Um, A lot of the guys, uh, except for Mio, were... You know native israelis they had not gone through the war they had not escaped the nazis um so mio was kind of unique um among the team in that he had a personal experience of the horror Um, the other men um had some of them had lost family members but distant family members in the holocaust Uh, the leader of the operation was a man named yosef yariv uh, very charismatic i spoke to his daughter uh, who lives in israel um, and he was kind of like the Hollywood version of a, an espionage leader, uh, just very technical, um, demanded loyalty and gave loyalty, but extremely charismatic. Whereas Mio was very much an introvert. So he was, Joseph Yuri was the guy who assembled the team. He, he put together five men he felt who could carry out this mission. And he just used his context from, you know, from the War of Independence and. From men he had known in the army and Mossad, looking for certain qualities, um, he chose a man named. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to get the name correct. I've, I've just seen it written, but Eliezer Sudit, um, who had um, who had faced death in in the war, and 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 Joseph had confidence in him. Um, I spoke with Sudit's son, who who described a very different man than we see in the book, I and mean, he was very. Uh, comical he was a joker um and even during operations he would sort of be doing his comedy routine and people would be like you know will you shut up this is not the time so um it it was just interesting to see that kind of a guy you know flourishing in the sod and then there were two other guys that that we know not that much about um were sort of the kind of the muscle for the operation but um Bio really was the heart of the mission. He had to go to South America alone. And the tough thing was that he had to befriend the butcher of Latvia. It wasn't a situation where he was going over and just taking a long rifle and shooting the guy from you know 200 yards. He had to get to know him. He had to sort of um, get his confidence and he had to move him to another country. Uh, Mossad didn't want to do the operation in Brazil. It was a right wing government. It was a large Jewish community. They were worried about blowback, you know, once it became known that, um, or suspected that Mossad had carried out this operation. So they needed to get him to another country. And therefore Mio faced the task of, you know, making friends with a guy very much like the guys who had murdered his own parents. So this really became a psychological challenge for him. Um, but he was up to the, up to the task.
0: He seemed the way you described him he seemed to be paying a big price emotionally and psychologically for carrying this out for the deception for being close to uh, a mass murderer it was uh, i i felt like i could almost feel what mio experienced so that's due to your writing I don't want to give away too much about the Mossad's incredibly daring and difficult operation that brought uh, down the mass murderer. Uh, For that, listeners should definitely read The Good Assassin. But let's talk a little about the nature of evil. What is your understanding, after being immersed in his life and his history and his actions, how Sukers, with no previous history of violence, Became a monster who enjoyed his uh, vicious work, and was personally responsible for thirty thousand innocent men, men, women, and children being murdered. That just that number rattles around my head. How How do you understand it?
1: Right. Well, I have to say I didn't understand it going into the research, and um, you know, he became sort of a test case for like why Why did? You know, why do these men? And there were others like him. I mean, if you look at the stories of the Holocaust, um, the stories of people like Anne Frank or things like that, there's always someone who seems to be the betrayer or the turncoat. And Herbert Zuckers was certainly that. So, what I discovered in, in going into his his history and his personality was that you know he was very much a narcissist. He he was very much interested in the story of Herbert Zuckers. Um, Before the war, as I said, he was a Latvian Lindbergh. He'd done things that no other Latvian had done before. He'd made a name for himself. um, And he had been welcomed by the country as sort of, uh, you know, like the best among us. So he became sort of addicted to that kind of fame and that kind of uh, esteem that he got. So we have to go a year before the Nazi invasion. Those Soviets um enter Latvia in 1940. I'm sorry, nineteen thirty-nine. And uh and it's a terrible occupation. Um and the Soviets become very much hated by the Latvian population. However, um Zukers is contacted by one of the leaders of the Soviet airplane industry, and Zucker's saw an opportunity there to get his own designs for airplanes into Soviet production, really to realize his dreams of becoming uh, an aircraft designer and um, someone who advances the the science of, of aeronautics. So he began working with the Soviets. Essentially he sold out his own people uh, because the occupation was absolutely devastating the Latvian citizens. So a year later when the, The Nazis come in and the Soviets are thrown out of the country. All of the collaborators who had worked with them became immediately suspect in the eyes of their fellow citizens. And these people were being taken and shot right alongside Jews and other people. So Zuckers not only saw, you know, that he could go into the pits and and be machine gunned and killed for what he'd done. Um, He saw that he needed a scapegoat. Um, And so instead of sort of taking the risk and and waiting out the war on his farm, which had been given to him by the Latvian government because of his exploits, he became proactive and said, I'm going to join this commando unit um, and I'm going to disguise my crimes by accusing other people of crimes. So in his case, it became became a matter of self-preservation and I don't think he was truly an anti-Semite, which is, you know, which is the cliche of every um, sort of perpetrator of the Holocaust we think of, that they, they acted out of some deep hatred of Jews. But for Zuckers, it was situational. He, he saw something that was about to happen. You know, there was rumor spreading about his collaboration, and he needed to act quickly. So he simply didn't have, I think... Um, this idea of self-sacrifice within him. He wanted to preserve himself at all costs. He thought he was worth more than other people. Um, so really that became the basis of the, his betrayal. Um, he went out, joined this commando unit, was second in command. And, you know, that that position brought privileges. He could march into any Jew's home and steal their silverware. And um, he did that. And he could take women away and sexually abuse them. And he did that. Um, So once he'd saved his own skin, he realized that he could again um, have this kind of position of glamor and power. Um, He could get rich. He could do all kinds of things. He was not being held back by anyone. So you really just see a narcissist who sees an opportunity and goes for it. And if it costs the lives of his former friends and neighbors, you know, he made his peace with that.
0: And once he saved himself, which uh, most of us can understand the, the challenge and the temptation to, to save your own life, but he seemed to just relish every opportunity to be cruel and evil. And, and what it made me think about is, does that mean that everyone is capable of that level of mega-cruelty? Uh, Of of course, I'd like to know, I'd like the answer to be, well, no, he was a narcissist and somebody else had some other excuse. But what did you think?
1: No, I don't think everyone um, would sort of react in that way. I think it was Susan Sontag who said, you know, in these kinds of situations, 10% of people become evil, 10% of people become, you know, extremely good and 80% of people kind of just try to exist. Um, right. And I did find that very much um, in the Latvian story that people who had been nobodies before, who had never been sort of uh, morally, you know, shining heroes really rose to the occasion. And then people like Zuckers saw only the possibilities for themselves. So I think a lot of it has to do with empathy. If you feel the plight of your fellow human being, Um, it's very hard to sort of act against it. But if you don't really see other people as human in the way that you are, it's very easy to toss them aside and just sort of use them. Um, So, yeah, the interesting thing about Zuckers is, uh, we can talk a little bit later, but he went to Brazil, you know, to escape and he lived there and he couldn't even remain anonymous there. I mean, other Nazi escapees took on new names and, and just, hid themselves in the new society, but Zuckers um, proclaimed that he was a hero of the war and that he had saved Jews. So even when his own life was at risk, he still needed to be uh, worshipped and become a hero. So he would go to Jews in in Rio de Janeiro and, and tell them these stories about how he'd saved Jews and sacrificed himself. So his narcissism really was pathological. I mean, He would do anything to get his name out there.
0: Right. And I, I guess the, it took certain historical and personal circumstances to bring that out. Before the war, he was just, uh, you know, your basic narcissistic, uh, arrogant, conceited, uh, successful hero. Um, yeah. That makes, that's a good explanation, but also a scary one because no one in his earlier life would have predicted that Sukers could become a mass murderer.
1: No, his parents were friendly with Jews. They they hired them for their workshop. Um, his family did not really, you know, show up in the far right, uh, you know, ranks of the far right group. So it really was. It just came down to his own kind of personality structure, and and right. and the war.
0: Now, since the Holocaust, there sadly have been other genocides. Most recently, uh, ISIS nearly wiped out the Yazidis, a small uh, Christian sect in Syria. Would you say there are lessons learned in your research uh, for the good assassin that applies to other atrocities, or better yet, to prevent atrocities like that?
1: You know, what's interesting about sort of the Latvians and Zuckers is that, um, a lot of sort of, I don't know if we want to call them ethnic groups or, or countries on their way to these kinds of genocides begin to see themselves as victims, as historical victims, certainly the Latvians had been through a lot, being positioned between Germany and Russia, um, and being overrun and occupied and dominated by these two larger countries. Um, But one of the key ingredients, even with someone like Zuckers, um, is to see themselves oppressed by other people and then to take revenge on those people. So even since the war, there have been people in Laffey who've tried to rehabilitate Herbert Zuckers. There was a musical about his life in 2014 that kind of wiped the slate clean of all his crimes and just kind of reintroduced him as a you know, it's an aviator and almost like a James Bond figure. So I think, um, this, this tendency towards, um, seeing oneself as, um, oppressed and not the oppressor is very strong in many people, many, you know, many ethnicities, um, and something you have to watch out for. So with, um, I mean, it's not an exact parallel with ISIS, but ISIS did see itself, um, Generally, as uh, a victim of the great powers of England, of the United States, who certainly both had dark roles, often in the Middle East, but then using that that history against um, people they want to hurt and oppress the Yazidis, obviously. Um, so, which is fascinating to me for Zuckers to see this guy who we have many testimony testimonies of Jews um, seeing him in action and seeing him kill people. Um, people want to deny this. They don't want to believe that their own uh, people were oppressors. So um, there's almost a competition to be the victim. Um, and, and you just see that again and again throughout history.
0: Yeah, including today. Uh, but you mentioned uh, something interesting about Rutgers, uh after the war. Uh, it was... It was clear in the portrait you painted of him uh, that he was, if not actually paranoid, on the edge of paranoia. He was a very suspicious individual. Now there is good reason for him to be suspicious because he was guilty, and and, uh, it's not unreasonable to be afraid that your the survivors of your massacres would want to take revenge. But, I wondered, did you have the sense that he was that way before that that was part of his narcissism?
1: um, I didn't see a lot of that before the war he was um you know he was kind of an exuberant guy. He would go to places like the far east he went to he even went to um Palestine and you know it's so ironic that. He was a man who I would have liked if, you know if had his biography ended just before the German invasion, you know he was someone that I would have found admirable. Um, it was really after the war um, when he's in Brazil, and this is a couple of years after the Eichmann operation, and he knew that you know he was on some he was on the Israelis list that he became very mistrustful. he was cut off from his family and his friends in Latvia. Um, I think he was lonely. And, um, you know, he, he knew his crimes. I do think it's a a sign that he was not completely sociopathic. He knew that what he had done. And I think he sensed that he was going to have to pay the price for it. So that was really one of the main challenges of the Mossad operation was that how do you get a guy who expects to see Mossad agents around every corner to trust a Mossad agent? It was really kind of a, a contradiction in terms, um, so they had to sort of acknowledge that he was neurotic um, and and just find someone who could kind of soothe his nerves and give him another thing he wanted, which was a, a last chance at riches and fame. So that's what Mossad kind of dangled in front of him to get his mind off the paranoia and allow them to sort of move forward with the operation.
0: Yeah, it was amazing that they were able to do that, to reinvent a, a whole reality and and what about the idea of uh, extrajudicial executions? Um, the the Eichmann was brought to Israel and to stand trial, and actually it was a historical, world shattering event. Um, but they uh, the Israeli government decided not to do that this time, and as as you mentioned, there was that time pressure of a statute of limitations, um, but how did you feel about that, just as somebody who uh, is lawful and comes out of a, a tradition of, of legality?
1: Um, you know, after reading the eyewitness testimonies uh, to what Zuckers had done, I really didn't have a problem with the Mossad decision, um, and then there was also the fact that Um, he was not going to be tried in any court. I mean, Jewish activists had tried to get him repatriated to Russia or Latvia to face trial there. Um, and the Russian response was that Latvia no longer exists. It's now part of the Soviet Union. So we cannot charge him under Latvian law because that country is no longer there. Um, the great powers America and Britain by the 1960s had really kind of washed their hands of pursuing Nazi war criminals. Um, you know, the Cold War was on, Germany was needed as an ally. Um, Brazil had a right-wing government, they certainly were not going to, you know, stage a trial and, and put Zuckers on trial. So had there been sort of a viable option um, where Zuckers could have been tried and then executed, I think I would have more sympathy for the for the case that he should not have been assassinated. But there really weren't those options and his crimes to me were so horrific. Um, you know, I don't believe in extrajudicial killings as a, as a method of kind of foreign policy, but, um, as you said, the time pressure and the time crunch and the idea that this much larger injustice was going to happen, this amnesty for Nazi killers, if you put that all together, I, I think, um, you know, I think it was a fair decision go after him.
0: Well, when I read it, that was on my mind and uh and but but you made the case and the case was so well documented by survivors and eyewitnesses that his crimes were were overwhelming. They were just uh, un, un unmeasurable. They were I know there was 30,000 people, but I don't think any of us can really get our arms around that, how one person can be responsible for murdering tens of thousands of people. And so to me, it felt like it was justice, not revenge. But some of the characters involved felt differently.
1: Yeah, some of the Mossad guys themselves, you know, there's a range of opinions. Um, Certainly for Mio, there was an elven of of revenge. He felt he was closing the book on his parents' murder. And for him, um, Zuckers kind of became a stand in for the guys who had killed his own parents and put them on the trains and and brought them to Auschwitz. Um, so he was not shy in admitting it, you know, he he said, I'm not above that. There, there is some element of revenge. Um, other people, um, Eliezer Sudid, who was in on the team, he was part of the kill team in Uruguay. um, did not take it personally. He saw this as um, kind of a marker that Israel was putting out there, that if you kill Jews in the future, this is what's going to happen to you. He very much saw himself as saving the Jews of the future, you know, and and putting this kind of line in the ground that that we're not going to accept the pogroms and the massacres anymore. There's going to be a real response in the real world. And this is what it's going to look like. Um, So, yeah, there was there was kind of uh, you know there was kind of a difference among the team themselves, so that probably is reflected in the real world as well.
0: Yeah, that particular point of view was actually very moving. That uh, he felt he was saving the the Jews of the future. You can't mess with us anymore, was what he was saying, and and they said it very loud and clear. Uh, uh, Stephen. You've given us a lot of your time, very generously, and uh, I hope everybody reads your book. Uh, Before I let you go, though, tell us what you're working on now.
1: Um, You know, I'm actually working on a podcast. Um,
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) Your territory.
1: (laughs) Um, It's probably going to happen later in the year, but um, I was contacted by a relative of one of the major Colombian cartels from the seventies and eighties and nineties. Um, a guy who sort of helped direct, you know, the flow of cocaine into North America and really changed the culture of America. And he's out of prison and he wants to talk. So yeah, that's probably going to be the next step. I'm going to interview this guy who, you know, changed thousands of lives and did very bad things, honestly, but also, now has regrets about it and has a certain wisdom about, you know, what happened with the cartels. And so we're hoping to get the inside story of that. Um, And, um, you know, another, you know, another sort of dark figure in history in a way, but someone who who wants to kind of tell their story and um, I think kind of atone a little bit for the past.
0: And do you want to tell us what the name of your podcast is? Give it a little. We haven't settled.
1: We haven't settled on one yet. It's we're still sort of um, in the early stages. Um, So that's kind of the next project, but um, it it won't be out really until the fall. But uh, hopefully, you'll hear about it.
0: Well, I'll stay tuned. Stephen, thank you so much for your important work, and also for being on the show today. And uh, lots of good luck with the new project. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks.